Greetings, detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company and our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Next morning, at the address McClump had given me, a rather elaborate apartment building on California Street, I had to wait three quarters of an hour for Mrs. Evelyn Trowbridge to dress. If I had been younger, or a social caller, I suppose I'd have felt amply rewarded when she finally came in, a tall, slender woman of less than thirty, in some sort of clinging black affair, with a lot of black hair over a very white face strikingly set off by a small red mouth and big hazel eyes that looked black until you got close to them. But I was a busy middle-aged detective who was fuming over having his time wasted, and I was a lot more interested in finding the bird who struck the match than I was in feminine beauty. However, I smothered my grouch, apologized for disturbing her at such an early hour, and got down to business. I want you to tell me all you know about your uncle— his family, friends, enemies, business connections, everything. 
I had scribbled on the back of the card I had sent into her what my business was. He hadn't any family, she said, unless I might be it. He was my mother's brother, and I am the only one of that family now living. Where was he born? Here in San Francisco. I don't know the date, but he was about fifty years old, I think. Three years older than my mother. What was his business? He went to sea when he was a boy, and so far as I know, always followed it until a few months ago. Captain? I don't know. Sometimes I wouldn't see or hear from him for several years, and he never talked about what he was doing, though he would mention some of the places he had visited. Rio de Janeiro, Madagascar, Tobago, Christiania. Then about three months ago, sometime in May, he came here and told me that he was through with wandering, that he was going to take a house in some quiet place where he could work undisturbed on an invention in which he was interested. He lived at the Francisco Hotel while he was in San Francisco. After a couple of weeks, he suddenly disappeared. And then, about a month ago, I received a telegram from him asking me to come see him at his house near Sacramento. I went up the very next day, and I thought that he was acting very queerly. He seemed very excited over something. He gave me a will that he had just drawn up and some life insurance policies in which I was beneficiary. Immediately after that, he insisted that I return home and hinted rather plainly that he did not wish me to either visit him again or write until I heard from him. I thought all that rather peculiar, as he had always seemed fond of me. I never saw him again. What was this invention he was working on? I really don't know. I asked him once, but he became so excited, even suspicious, that I changed the subject and never mentioned it again. Are you sure he really did follow the sea all those years? No, I am not. I just took it for granted but he may have been doing something altogether different. Was he ever married? Not that I know of. Know any of his friends or enemies? No, none. Remember anybody's name that he ever mentioned? No. I don't want you to think this next question insulting, though I admit it is. But it has to be asked. Where were you the night of the fire? At home. I had some friends here to dinner, and they stayed until about midnight. Mr. and Mrs. Walker Kellogg, Mrs. John Dupree, and uh, Mr. Kilmer, who was a lawyer. I can give you their addresses, or you can get them from the phone book if you want to question them. From Mrs. Trowbridge's apartment, I went to the Francisco Hotel. Thornburg had been registered there from May 10th to June 13th, and hadn't attracted much attention. He had been a tall, broad-shouldered, erect man of about fifty, with rather long brown hair brushed straight back, a short-pointed brown beard, and healthy, ruddy complexion, grave, quiet, punctilious in dress and manner. His hours had been regular, and he had had no visitors that any of the hotel employees remembered. At the Seaman's Bank, upon which Thornburg's check and payment of the house had been drawn, I was told that he had opened an account there on May 15th, having been introduced by W. W. Jefferson Sons local stockbrokers. A balance of a little more than $400 remained to his credit. 
The canceled checks on hand were all to the order of various life insurance companies, and for amounts that, if they represented premiums, testified to rather large policies. I jotted down the names of the life insurance companies and then went to the offices of W. W. Jefferson Sons. Thornburg had come in, I was told, on the 10th of May with $4,000 worth of Liberty Bonds that he wanted sold. During one of his conversations with Jeffers, he had asked the broker to recommend a bank, and Jeffers had given him a letter of introduction to the Siemens Bank. That was all Jeffers knew about him. He gave me the numbers of the bonds, but tracing Liberty Bonds isn't the easiest thing in the world. The reply to my Seattle telegram was waiting for me at the agency when I arrived. Mrs. Edward Comerford rented apartment at address you give on May 25, gave it up June 6 trunks to San Francisco, same day, check numbers GN45287 and 8 and 9. Tracing baggage is no trick at all, if you have the dates and check numbers to start with. With, as many a bird who is wearing somewhat similar numbers on his chest and back, because he overlooked that detail when making his getaway, can tell you. And 25 minutes in a baggage room at the ferry and half an hour in the office of a transfer company gave me my answer. The trunks had been delivered to Mrs. Evelyn Trowbridge's apartment. I got Jim Tarr on the phone and told him about it. Good shooting, he said, forgetting for once to indulge his wit. We'll grab the Coonses here and Mrs. Trowbridge there, and that's the end of another mystery. Wait a minute. I cautioned him. It's not all straightened out yet. There's still a few kinks in the plot. It's straight enough for me. I'm satisfied. You're the boss, but I think you're being a little hasty. I'm going up and talk with the niece again. Give me a little time before you phone the police here to make the pinch. I'll hold her until they get there. Evelyn Trowbridge let me in this time instead of the maid who had opened the door for me in the morning and she led me to the same room in which we had had our first talk. I let her pick out a seat, and then I selected one that was closer to either door than hers was. On the way up, I had planned a lot of innocent-sounding questions that would get her all snarled up. But after taking a good look at the woman sitting in front of me, leaning comfortably back in her chair, coolly waiting for me to speak my piece, I discarded the trick stuff and came out cold turkey. Ever use the name Mrs. Edward Comerford? Oh, yes. As casual as a knot on the street. When? Often. You see, I happen to have been married not so long ago to Mr. Edward Comerford, so it's not really strange that I should have used the name. Use it in Seattle recently? I would suggest, she said sweetly, that if you are leading up to the references I gave Coons and his wife, you might save time by coming right to it. That's fair enough, I said. Let's do that. There wasn't a half-tone, a shading in voice, manner, or expression to indicate that she was talking about anything half so serious or important to her as a possibility of being charged with murder. She might have been talking about the weather or a book that hadn't interested her particularly. During the time that Mr. Comerford and I were married, we lived in Seattle, where he still lives. After the divorce, I left Seattle and resumed my maiden name. And the Coonses were in our employ, as you might learn if you care to look it up, 
You'll find my husband, or former husband, at the Chelsea Apartments, I think. Last summer, or late spring, I decided to return to Seattle. The truth of it is, I suppose all my personal affairs will be aired anyhow. But I thought perhaps Edward and I might patch up our differences. So I went back and took an apartment on Woodmansey Terrace. As I was known in Seattle as Mrs. Edward Comerford, and as I thought my using his name might influence him a little, perhaps, I used it while I was there. Also, I telephoned the Coonses to make tentative arrangements in case Edward and I should open our house again. But Coons told me that they were going to California, and so I gladly gave them an excellent recommendation when, some days later, I received a letter of inquiry from an employment bureau in Sacramento. After I'd been in Seattle for about two weeks, I changed my mind about the reconciliation. Edward's interest, I learned, was all centered elsewhere. So I returned to San Francisco. Very nice. But if you will permit me to finish, she interrupted. When I went to see my uncle in response to his telegram, I was surprised to find the Coonses in his house. Knowing my uncle's peculiarities, and finding them now increased, and remembering his extreme secretiveness about his mysterious invention, I cautioned the Coonses not to tell him that they had been in my employ. He certainly would have discharged them, and just as certainly would have quarreled with me. He would have thought that I was having him spied upon. Then, when Coons telephoned me after the fire, I knew that to admit that the Coonses had been formerly in my employ would, in view of the fact that I was my uncle's heir, cast suspicion on all three of us, so we foolishly agreed to say nothing about it and carry on the deception. That didn't sound all wrong, but it didn't sound all right. I wished Tar had taken it easier and let us get a better line on these people before having them thrown in the coop. The coincidence of the Coons' stumbling into my uncle's house is, I fancy, too much for your detecting instincts, she went on as I didn't say anything. Am I to consider myself under arrest? I'm beginning to like this girl. She's a nice, cool piece of work. Not yet, I told her. But I'm afraid it's going to happen pretty soon. She smiled a little mocking smile at that and another when the doorbell rang. It was O'Hara from police headquarters. We turned the apartment upside down and inside out, but didn't find anything of importance except the will she had told me about. Dated July 8th and her uncle's life insurance policies. They were all dated between May 15th and June 10th, and added up to a little more than $200,000. I spent an hour grilling the maid after O'Hara had taken Evelyn Trowbridge away, but she didn't know any more than I did. However, between her, the janitor, the manager of the apartments, and the names Mrs. Trowbridge had given me, I learned that she really had been entertaining friends on the night of the fire. Until after eleven o'clock, anyway. And that was late enough. Half an hour later, I was riding the short line back to Sacramento. I was getting to be one of the line's best customers, and my anatomy was on bouncing terms with every bump in the road. And the bumps, as Rubberhead Davis used to say about the flies and mosquitoes in Alberta in summer, is freely plentiful. Between bumps, I tried to fit the pieces of this Thornburg puzzle together. The niece and the Coonses fit in somewhere, but just not where we had them. 
We had been working on the job sort of lopsided, but it was the best we could do with it. In the beginning, we had turned to the Kunzes and Evelyn Trowbridge because there was no other direction to go, and now we had something on them, but a good lawyer could make hash of our case against them. The Kunzes were in the county jail when I got to Sacramento. After some questioning, they had admitted their connection with the niece and had come through with stories that matched hers in every detail. Tar, McClump, and I sat around the sheriff's desk and argued. These yarns are pipe dreams, the sheriff said. We got all three of them cold, and there's nothing else to it. They're as good as convicted of murder. McClump grinned derisively at his superior and then turned to me. Go on. You tell him about the holes in his little case. He ain't your boss and can't take it out on you later for being smarter than he is. Tar glared from one of us to the other. Spill it, you wise guys, he ordered. Our dope is, I told him, figuring that McClump's view of it was the same as mine, that there's nothing to show that even Thornburg knew he was going to buy that house before the 10th of June, and that the Coonses were in town looking for work on the 2nd. And besides, it was only by luck that they got the jobs. The employment office sent two couples out there ahead of them. We'll take a chance on letting the jury figure that out. Yes, you'll also take a chance on them figuring out that Thornburg, who seems to have been a nut all right, might have touched off the place himself. We've got something on these people, Jim, but not enough to go into court with them. How are you going to prove that when the Kunzes were planted in Thornburg's house, if you can even prove they were, they and the Trowbridge woman knew he was going to load up with insurance policies? The sheriff spat disgustedly. You guys are the limit. You run around in circles, digging up the dope on these people until you get enough to hang them, and then you run around hunting for outs. What the hell's the matter with you now? I answered him from halfway to the door. The pieces were beginning to fit together under my skull. Going to run some more circles. Come on, Mac. McClump and I held a conference on the fly, and then I got a machine from the nearest garage and headed for Tavender. We made time going out and got there before the general store had closed for the night. The stuttering Philo separated himself from the two men with whom he had been talking Hiram Johnson and followed me to the rear of the store. Do you keep an itemized list of the laundry you handle? N no just the amounts. Let's look at Thornburg's. He produced a begrimed and rumpled account book, and we picked out the weekly items I wanted. $2.60, $3.10, $2.25, and so on. Got the last batch of laundry here? Y yes he said. It just c came out from the city today. I tore open the bundle. Some sheets, pillowcases, tablecloths, towels, napkins, some feminine clothing, some shirts, collars, underwear, socks that were unmistakably Kunz's. I thanked Philo while running back to my machine. Back in Sacramento again, McClump was waiting for me at the garage where I had hired the car. Registered at the hotel on June 15th. Rented the office on the 16th. I think he's in the hotel now, he greeted me. We hurried around the block to the Garden Hotel. Mr. Henderson went out a minute or two ago, the night clerk told us. He seemed to be in a hurry. Know where he keeps his car? In the hotel garage around the corner. We were within two pavements of the garage when Henderson's automobile shot out and turned up the street. 
Oh, Mr. Henderson, I cried, trying to keep my voice level and smooth. He stepped on the gas and streaked away from us. Want him? McClump asked, and at my nod stopped a passing roadster by the simple expedient of stepping in front of it. We climbed aboard. McClump flashed his star at the bewildered driver and pointed out Henderson's dwindling taillight. After he had persuaded himself that he wasn't being boarded by a couple of bandits, the commandeered driver did his best, and we picked up Henderson's taillight after two or three turnings and closed in on him, though his machine was going at a good clip. By the time we reached the outskirts of the city, we had crawled up to within safe shooting distance, and I sent a bullet over the fleeing man's head. Thus encouraged, he managed to get a little more speed out of his car but we were definitely overhauling him now. Just at the wrong minute, Henderson decided to look over his shoulder at us. An unevenness in the road twisted his wheels. The machine swayed, skidded, went over on its side. Almost immediately from the heart of the tangle came a flash and a bullet moaned past my ear. Another. And then, while I was still hunting for something to shoot at in the pile of junk we were drawing down upon, McClump's ancient and battered revolver roared in my other ear. Anderson was dead when we got to him. McClump's bullet had taken him over one eye. McClump spoke to me over the body. I ain't an inquisitive sort of fella, but I hope you don't mind telling me why I shot this lad. Because he was Thornburg. He didn't say anything for about five minutes. Then, I reckon that's right. How'd you guess it? We were sitting beside the wreckage now, waiting for the police that we had sent our commandeered chauffeur to phone for. He had to be, I said, when you think it all over. Funny we didn't hit on it before. All that stuff we were told about Thornburg had a fishy sound. Whiskers and an unknown profession. Immaculate and working on a mysterious invention. Very secretive and born in San Francisco where the fire wiped out all the old records. Just the sort of fake that could be cooked up easily. Then nobody but the Kunzes, Evelyn Trowbridge, and Henderson ever saw him except between the 10th of May and the middle of June when he bought the house. The Kunzes and the Trowbridge woman were tied up in this affair somehow, we knew. So that left only Henderson to consider. You told me he came to Sacramento sometime early this summer and the dates you got tonight show that he didn't come until after Thornburg had bought his house. All right, now compare Henderson with the descriptions we got of Thornburg. Both are about the same size and age and with the same color hair. The differences are all things that can be manufactured. Clothes, a little sunburn, and a month's growth of beard, along with a little acting, would do the trick. Tonight I went out to Tavender and took a look at the last batch of laundry, and there wasn't any that didn't fit the Kunzes, and none of the bills all the way back were large enough for Thornburg to have been as careful about his clothes as we were told he was. It must be great to be a detective, McClump grinned as the police ambulance came up and began disgorging policemen. I reckon somebody must have tipped Henderson off that I was asking about him this evening. And then, regretfully, so we ain't gonna hang them folks for murder after all. No, but we oughtn't have any trouble convicting them of arson plus conspiracy to defraud and anything else that the prosecuting attorney can think up. 
Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.